1: From the headstuff podcast network, welcome to Mother Folklore Last Orders, podcast of words. Irish, Irish words and words from Ireland. I am Tara Crochet. This is actually going to be our last ever Mother Folklore interview it's not our last episode will be coming soon but the um I, I just wanted you know before before we are wrapped up a, a topic that keeps coming up on mother folklore is the tawn and irish mythology in general but particularly how it, these this, this text resonates so deeply with people in a way maybe i'm not sure if greek people are care deeply about um greek mythology i'm sure they do um, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not sure if English people care deeply about Arthurian um, narratives. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But certainly, at Ireland, we probably people do feel fairly close to their texts. But also, these texts have, such as the dawn, have been able to sustain multiple readings, multiple conflicting but or complementary, or uh, different readings. It's something I wanted to return to in the world that we're in, and I have, was very lucky that a wonderful guest has agreed to join us today a master's student in Cork. I'm um, studying um, Irish, older, early Irish, Irish.
0: Early and medieval Irish, I think is what they call it.
1: <laughs> early and medieval Irish, that'll do the trick. Yeah. mother folklore, Finn Longman.
0: Hi. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: Then what, what's, what kind of stuff are you doing in your research?
0: Um, so I specialize in medieval Irish literature and I'm particularly interested in the Ulster Cycle, and I'm writing my thesis about the character of Lai Gavra who is Kukhalan's charioteer um, and a very neglected character, very interesting mm. character. But in the past, I was looking more at Kuchalan himself and looking at the ways he's a kind of liminal or transgressive figure, particularly with relation to like gender and queer theory, but also looking a bit about monsters. Mm. Uh, love a monster. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and this is the thing, because we, we, you often see, I mean, when we... I guess when we when we we reach kind of uh, child-friendly versions of the taunt, you know, kind of uh, when Kukul and turns into a monster, he's kind of like a, a slightly Hulk-like figure. Maybe he just gets a bit bigger when he turns red. In the text, where his eye kind of dangles out and he has blood, uh, blood um, hose coming out of his forehead, and it's fairly gr- grotesque.
0: Yeah, uh, his whole body kind of turns inside out. I actually think people always compare him to the Incredible Hulk, but if you're going to go for a comic book comparison, I would go for Venom. Uh, the Riestrad reminds me of he has a parasite (laughs) the Riestrad is when it wins his whole body just becomes this kind of horrifyingly like inside out um, giant thing it's very bizarre and it's always de-weirded in the retellings
1: yes that's the thing it's such a shame to actually to lose some of that weirdness I think and a recurring thing, something that's kept, a topic that's kept on popping up, up for us, and when we talk with the Tawny there through the Irish Four account through the multiple account, or on the podcast, is this idea that, oh, wouldn't this be a great Netflix series? But I would surely be de-weirded significantly in order to make that happen.
0: Yeah, I think... It's, it's tricky to adapt to, like, modern visual sensibilities because a lot of the time I get the impression the authors aren't interested in the kind of visual plausibility. Like, you read the descriptions and they contradict each other and they don't make sense, but it's it's more about the vibe than mm. about, like, physically being able to draw it. It's it's about, well, this is the impression of this kind of inverted figure rather than the literal reality of it. So I think it would be quite hard to represent visually. I'd be really interested in seeing if someone could represent it through dance or some other kind of more abstract performance art um, because Mm. I think it's a very sort of physical text more than it's a visual
1: text. Very much so. And when we talk about what was there there, like the the physicality of the text, and um, what would be a good example of that? You know, compared to maybe some of the other um, medieval things, Sir Orfio and stuff like that.
0: Um. Well, I just think there is so much focus on bodies because it's a text about combat, and it's a text mm-hmm. where we have these constant single combat, some of which are very kind of slapstick, with Cuchulain just throwing spears through people's heads or like people mm-hmm. getting impaled with pillar stones and so on. But also, there's this kind of um, intense physicality and grace to Kajalan's own fighting style. He has his like notorious salmon leap, and for example, mm. and it, it's very hard to visualize until you start thinking about kind of Olympic gymnasts and ballet dancers who can contort their bodies into these improbable shapes in the air and then suddenly you're like, oh, actually, yeah, I kind of make sense of this. Whereas when you think of people as very sort of static figures on the ground with swords, it's hard to represent that um, yeah. sort of speed and agility that there is there.
1: Oh, very much so. And I, I, that, that does make sense. And when you think about, I suppose, I guess, um, um, Eng- English Oregon, or Welsh uh, texts in a similar period, you might find, yes, there probably isn't always that same emphasis on, on the body itself, mm. which is something I, God, I had, a, I had the pleasure of reading The Dream of the Rood in college. You know, that one.
0: Um, yeah, secondhand. I've not done much with the old English stuff myself, but I, my, a lot of my friends have, especially friends from undergrad. So I kind of get all of their secondhand observations.
1: <laughs> You'd think a talking tree would be a lot of fun. <laughs> no. but So, so getting to um, something that that connects with um, controversies and uh, un- un- unnecessary controversies uh, in 2021 is that the town actually does, to, as as a text it's frequently mentioned that this is that it it, it uh, responds well to uh read uh, to gender focused readings uh to queer readings and readings that uh um in, in that that the that text represents because it, that shows certain things certain ideas that are dismissed as modern or faddish or actually um, have deep historical roots not just in uh, not just globally but also between, but in ireland as well this is idea we we, we um We're bombarded by a discourse that, you know, we can't expect people over 32 to understand something as complicated as being transgender or non-binary because these are brand new ideas. And they're not.
0: Yeah, definitely not. And I think most medieval literature is queerer or has potential to be read as queerer than most people anticipate and most people expect. I think we have the Victorians to blame for that. A lot of their retellings, like, sort of simplified and imposed Victorian gender ideals on characters that means it's been kind of obscured to modern readers if they don't have access to the original texts, I think.
1: Well, very much so. That, that, that idea that it's, it's... People find it so hard to believe that something as, as, as central to, I guess, um, as central to kind of the ways I understand the idea of a of, group of people being greeted as ladies and gentlemen and the anti and single sex education and things like that the idea that that something like this might actually have been imposed and rather than just being the way things always are and it's very it doesn't take long to implement uh this is the way things always are kind of a narrative
0: yeah i uh, i think also there's a a lot of things like People often think, oh, well, this binary is very Christian um, and therefore it must have like come in with Christianity. But even when you look at medieval Christianity, a lot of like the hagiography and the saints lives, they don't fit neatly in our boxes. They're a lot Mm. more transgressive and interesting and queer than we might anticipate. So I really don't think we can lay that at Christianity's door Mm. either. It's much more modern than that.
1: Yeah, I think... um I think some of the excesses of, of modern internet atheism have made people kind of think maybe at least, maybe these maybe the worst people in the world are wrong about everything else you know it's like it just it just seems to be the fact that this common thread of these of these awful um public commentators has been this idea that you know, it, you can that you can blame religion but not blame oh you know, the, the capitalism that runs with it and, and all the other other institutions or the military and things like that that kinda of run with it. It's been alarming. So it's so I suppose we'll get down to actually how this reflects in the Tawn. When why do people why do you think people say that the taun is um is a, a queer friendly text or a is it a text that responds to a queer reading?
0: So I think it's interesting because This is quite a common discussion on the internet, but it is not a mainstream discussion in academia. It is is not something that people have kind of universally accepted. There are one or two articles that explore queer reading. Sarah Sheehan wrote one in 2006 um, called Ferdia deflowered homoerotics and masculinity in Kovrach Ferdia. But other than that, there's been kind of Very little acknowledgement of those queer potentials. Whereas on the internet, a lot of people read this and they kind of immediately engage with that. And some of that is just academia being quite conservative in some manners. And some of it is like where chaotic studies has tended to historically happen has been in like quite Catholic environments quite often. So that Mm -hmm. doesn't help. Um, But yeah, it's one of those things where on the internet, everyone's like, oh, yeah, I get this. And in academia, if you say that, it's a bit actually quite controversial sometimes Um, but I mean there are a few like starting points I think for where you can see those queer potentials in the time and I would emphasize that when I talk about queer readings I'm like not suggesting necessarily any intent on the part of the authors to Mm. portray something that we as modern readers would understand as queerness Uh, it's more that like there's something that we as modern readers can interpret Um, it's, it's a layer of understanding and I think the value of a queer reading is it disrupts our assumptions um, because if we stop assuming that everyone in a text is straight and cis we start looking at how gender roles are constructed in the text we start looking at where the interesting relationship dynamics are and where the power balance is and we actually end up with a more nuanced take even if none of the conclusions we come to are like this is homoerotic like even if we still assume everyone is straight at the end at least we've deconstructed it and we've examined what that means within the context of the text. So one of the values of of a queer reading is it just makes everything more intentional and more kind of deliberate. Um, And the Mm -hmm. other reason they're great is because they do allow people to see themselves in their own mythology. The number of people who've come to me and been like, it's so great that you like see Kuchel as being someone who could be like me. I Mm -hmm. really value that. That is one of the reasons I think it's Worthwhile, even if that's like not an academic argument for it. But um, the two areas that people often look at are the relationship between Cuchulainn and Ferdia. Um, and for those who aren't aware, Ferdia is Cuchulainn's like close friend from when he was younger. They trained together under the warrior woman Skothach and now they come upon each other in single combat and um, fight to the death because. It's not friendship unless there's a death match involved. Of course. Um, so this relationship between them is like one of the first things people interpret as queer. And the other thing is that Cucullan himself is quite a problematically masculine figure, um, which is funny because in artwork he's always depicted as like this hypermasculine, muscle-strapped. Figure, which yeah. actually the text doesn't support at all. Literally, everyone who meets him is like, "Why is this guy so small? Why mm. doesn't he have a beard?" Which every trans guy I know has looked at that and been like, "Oh, I relate to that
1: experience."
0: <laughs> uh, so that is quite a good starting point for looking at transmasculine readings of Cuchulain and looking at ways he transgresses like gender expectations.
1: Yeah, for sure, and, and so much, so much of it is about that, is that, about transformation as well. Um, but the. Yes, that that's that is something and, and I know there's a on Bot is a wonderful feature which which is it's the burn or brick version of the of the Twan is, is um
0: I think it's uh Joseph Dunn's Joseph
1: Dunn, 19-14. sorry about that big one. Yes. Yes,
0: yes from like 1914s. and he has a interesting approach sometimes, <laughs> but <laughs>
1: Yes, definitely, and yeah, it's it's a very interesting text, and uh, being able to read it in bits and in, in small chunks uh, on a day to day basis, and to, to roll back, it is interesting that there there is a, often this emphasis on how Kukul and uh, Satanta is called the lad, and they're described as you know being quite beautiful, quite vain, and yes, and not and using grass to actually make a fake beard to pass yeah. to, to pass as a, as a man
0: exactly and um so there's a really interesting comment from medev and i should just put a note here all of my pronunciations are very medieval so mm-hmm. <laughs> they may not sound like the modern irish ones this is not just me being english it is actually me being a medievalist anyway okay. um, so i say medev and not mave but yeah so there's mm-hmm. an interesting comment from medev near the beginning where she says that hughelen is only the age of a marriageable girl or only the size of a marriageable girl so basically mm-hmm. It's, it's a very disparaging comment she's saying, but but he's so tiny, he's not old enough for this, like, why are we scared of him? But the fact that she specifically compares him to a girl and nothing else, it's like, she's she's being dismissive, but it has kind of connotations that you're like, okay, why would she make that comparison? Why would she position him? And it kind of puts him on a level with Medov's own daughter, who is used as a bargaining piece throughout. It makes these two young people seem more similar than we would have... Expected, And then throughout, people are constantly, like, saying Kukhalan is small. Um, And again, you could dismiss that as just, like, people who don't like him being like, well, he's tiny. Although, really, they have no motivation to do so because it's more embarrassing for them to get beaten up by a tiny little kid. Like, you would expect them to exaggerate his size, if anything. But then there's there's a great moment where he describes himself as a Milbeck. A little creature. He's like, I am just a little creature. Uh,
1: <laughs> I'm small.
0: Yeah, he says this little creature that you see, that is me, is wrathful, um, and its meal is actually the same word that's used to describe like insects. It's it's a very kind of derogatory word for a small, low creature. Um, okay. The fact that he uses it for himself, and he's such a proud person, you can't imagine himself. Like calling himself small if he wasn't actually small. So, yeah. and then the false beard thing. Yeah, he on multiple occasions he has to adopt a fake beard. One time with blackberry juice. One time with grass and magic. And the fact that he uses magic is always interesting to me. Hmm. Um, it's kind of an illusion that he's creating there. And it's he doesn't seem bothered by it. Like he, if he was bothered by it, he would wear a fake beard all the time. It's just that when other people question him, he's like, "Guess I gotta conform to your norms now." <laughs> mm-hmm. So
1: that's a that's a great point, and the idea that yes, it's uh, that the disguise is a hassle.
0: Yeah, and like he's seventeen, and in uh, old Irish law, um, the age of full adulthood was the age of beard encirclement, which was supposed to be 20. So the fact that they're emphasising his lack of a beard, they're pointing out that he doesn't yet meet this legal category of adult. He is, he's too young. Um, but the fact that like his beardlessness is unexpected to them, I think is one of the things that makes it so intriguing because surely they know how old he is. And it's, hmm. I mean, there's lots of parallels like Achilles is often described as beardless even when he's an adult. Uh, We see it in the sort of middle high German texts. I think some of them are beardless when they're like nearly 30 um, and Lancelot in Lancelot du Lac he's specifically he's 17 in that as well Mm -hmm. and he's described as a beardless boy. So it is kind of part of this uh, broader range of heroic beauty Um, but it's unusual because Cuchelan kind of seems insecure about it the way that other people kind of respond to it he's like okay i guess i have to do something about this he Mm. could just prove them wrong he could just beat them up without a beard he feels the need to do what they require it reminds me of like when my friends kind of have to hyper perform gender to get gender clinics to take them seriously they're like well i guess Mm. i have to wear makeup because otherwise they won't believe me Mm. um but beauty is often a masculine thing in irish texts which i think is unexpected to to modern readers yeah But Nisha and Freuch and Kukhalen, they're all described as beautiful. And there's a really interesting poem about the kings of the Illith and so on, which makes comparisons between medieval heroes and classical heroes. And it says that Nisha is equivalent to Paris because their beauty caused the Trojan War and the Tyne. Oh, uh which blaming the Trojan War on Paris rather than on Helen is fascinating. That,
1: that's what I'm thinking. that, that is yeah. fascinating.
0: And then suggesting that it's Nisha's beauty that's the problem, that's why Deirdre ran away with him. That's what started the time. Like, again, that's a that's a take. Um mm. and it shows that we shouldn't think, oh, beauty, that's automatically feminine. Like, actually their constructions of masculinity are not the same as ours, which is why it's so useful to like take away our assumptions and sort of strip back and be like, okay, look, how is gender being constructed and presented in this text? Because if we just assume it's the same as the modern one, we're going to miss those kind of interesting points.
1: Very much so. And I mean that's that, 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 that is, that's a that's a that's a really fascinating point and so i'll be thinking about that all day i'll be mentioning that <laughs> in the conversations I end up in and when we talk about it and obviously the, the, the when when people think about gender and the tone, the inevitably queen Maeve or meta as, as you pronounce it um comes up and the idea that she's that a such a formidable female character and 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 it's It was often pointed out i remember we had a teacher in school say that you know a lot of fairy tales traditionally end in a wedding but a lot of irish mythologies they begin with a wedding and then things go wrong and that that may have just been how like lady gregory kind of um um, anthologized them rather than actually a a genuine trend in in a a narrative history but it does start effectively with almost like a divorce. a couple deciding how who owns how much what and how much of what and on the split
0: yeah, it's interesting though because that opening is only in one version of it. So we have multi we have three recensions, so that's like distinct versions of the okay. time. The first one is in um and um Yellow Lechen, among other manuscripts. Uh the second one is in the Book of Leinster, and then there's a version that we call recension 2b which is in a much later 15th century manuscript and then recension 3 is sort of 14th century and it's a bit fragmentary and so the pillow talk episode as they call it is only in the book of leinster or it's an innovation of the book of leinster i think it okay. does show up later um so the first recension actually just kind of starts in media as they are invading also we don't know why they haven't hmm. told us why there's a few different reasons that it could be because we have some other stories that provide a backstory. So there's one called *Time um, Beethoven*, which like provides a motivation there. And in fact, the, the Pillow Talk episode where they are splitting up their wealth and deciding who owns what is like never alluded to in the body of the time itself. Like they never kind of hark back to it. They never say, yeah. "Oh yeah, but what about this?" Um, and so it kind of is. It does seem like possibly the person who compiled the version that ends up in the Book of Leinster created that because it needed to have a more coherent start. And mm. that was the story they decided to tell. And it's interesting that the, the Book of Leinster version, some people have said it's much more misogynistic than the first recension. It, preve- it presents Medhav in a much more negative light in places and it has some more sort of disparaging comments about like, this is what happens when you, when you listen to women sort of thing. Huh. Um so the fact that they make this a kind of marital dispute rather than, for example, if we take the Toyin background, it's uh, otherworldly shenanigans going on, um, which is obviously like on a much more bigger mythological scale. And they've yeah. instead made it about like, oh, there's this disagreement. And the reason Medhav doesn't have a bull to match Alil's is because it was her bull originally and it went over to Alil's herds because it didn't want to be led by a woman. Um, yeah. So it's it's all tying into those kind of the gender... Elements that are emphasised in the Book of Leinster version.
1: God, yeah, that's uh, that's an that's an interesting point about it. It, it only being in one, one part of the text, but it's uh, it's certainly become very popular in the in the translated versions in the twenty first yeah. and twentieth, twenty first century.
0: Um, like it's one of those things also where when you just read in the sort of mainstream translations like Kinsellas and Carson's, which are great translations, but it kind of obscures the fact that what we have is not. A single text we actually have multiple versions that sometimes contradict each other and sometimes do things a little bit differently and some of them have bits missing as well so you do have to look at more than one manuscript because sometimes there's some pages gone and if we just started in the middle of nowhere with no explanation we wouldn't know what was happening so that's why the product mm. talk episode gets put in always because it does provide the sort of neatest explanation for what's going on.
1: Yeah, it, it does. It, it creates a c- clarity, and I suppose, and particularly it, it adds a, a poignancy or a significance to the two bulls fighting at the end.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's interesting in the Taim um backstory that kind of Medev's desire there was to see the two bulls fight. She was like, I will not be happy until I see these two bulls fighting kind of thing. So that was her ge- her goal all along, whereas in The time, it's like, oh, well, that seems like nobody won here because nobody got these animals. They're just dead. Um, But also, like, because so many of their body parts become parts of the landscape, some people have theorized it originally was a sort of a remnant of a creation story or a remnant of some kind of topographical myth, because it ties into the Din Hanahas, the law of place names. Um, mm. Like, so much of the time is about place names. Like, this person died here, that's why it's called that. That person died there, that's why it's called that. This part is the, the bull's shoulder, you know. Um, so it has these kind of huge implications for the Irish landscape. Yeah. Um, but for the characters themselves, it's a bit like, oh, this whole thing was a little bit pointless. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's the thing, and I know some people have said that it's it's an early anti-war text, but that might be imposing a modern imposing a modern position on on, on it. I mean, I mean, I
0: think it does seem to have a critical viewpoint of violence. Um, like it very much seems to present violence as something that needs to be tempered yeah. by by prudence, by good judgment. It. And especially, I think, once we get to the point for Cucullin's Lament for Ferdia, where so much of it is about how futile everything seems after this this desperate, um, violent death, um, it sort of starts to look more critical. And I, there are definitely some scholars who, like, look at this as a sort of clerical anti-war um, viewpoint because, obviously, it is being written... In the version we have, it, it's being written in monasteries. And... Um, uh, Crusades aside, like the Christian Church, generally like vaguely anti-war. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't think it's necessarily an anachronism to suggest there's some um, anti-war ideals coming through in places, and it certainly seems like not uncritical of this heroic topos of violence. You know. The World According to Wikipedia is a podcast that pops the hood of Wikipedia and invites you to take a look inside. Each episode we will talk to someone from the Wikimedia community on topics like why are only 18% of biographies about women? Can editing Wikipedia be a protest or activism? And what is it like for the communities working on the 200 plus Wikipedias that are not in English? Subscribe on your podcast of choice and follow us on Twitter at world underscore Wikipedia.
1: Let's talk a little more about Ferdinand Kugel and the fact that they were foster brothers as I said. And, yeah. and are. are are, some people think oh I oh, guess it's jumping to conclusions to see a um, to see a, a romantic or sexual relationship there but but is it it's I don't think it's jumping to conclusions
0: I don't think so so there's a few there's a few things about Cuchulainn and ferdia's relationship um mm. that are worth mentioning so they're foster brothers because they were taught by Scathach, and there are several other opponents that Cuchulainn comes across in the time who were also trained by Scathach and who have this same relationship and I mean some of them like Ferbeth I think is one of the early ones he fights and he does try and talk him out of it and like appeals to their friendship and says you know we I don't want to do this but after he's killed both he just kind of gets over it yeah. and he doesn't seem affected by any of these other deaths in the way that he is affected by Ferdias um, so I think there, this is a sign that there is something different about their relationship um, and there's something different about the nature of that bond. Um, And people often take the manner of Ferdia's death as the starting point for a queer reading and as a starting point for looking at homoerotics, because he is killed through the use of the Gabolga, which is like this exploding spear that is inserted through the anus and then eviscerates people from the inside, which is obviously like completely awful and horrifying on all levels. Um, But because it's like this phallic weapon and the way it is used people then go oh maybe this is a bit gay Mm -hmm. i actually think that's quite problematic as a starting point for the homoerotics like it's Mm -hmm. equating queerness with this act of desecrating violence and this like profound violation of the body which i'm quite uncomfortable with you know suggesting that sexualized violence is equivalent to queerness is like that's a bit dodgy once you think about it like i know people do start there and it it is a starting point, but it, I don't think it's the place we should stay. Well, I'm much more interested in looking at Kukholan's lament for Ferdia, which happens immediately afterwards, for a few reasons. But mostly, like it's the only time in the time that he has this kind of reaction, that he expresses this profound regret for what has happened. Um, it's, it's kind of the emotional climax of the text. But I also think it's the point where Kukholan grows up. Um, he's a 17-year-old boy. He seems invincible. And this is the closest he comes to death. But it's also the first time he loses something that means something to him. And he yeah. says, all play, all sport, until Ferdia came to the Ford. In other words, like none of this mattered until now. And he suddenly is forced to face up to what mortality is and what death is. Like These, these matches, these death matches are not just who's going to win this game. It's, oh my goodness, someone I cared about is... Dead forever. Um, and the profoundness with which he like struggles with that loss immediately after Ferdia's death, he's just kind of immobilized by grief and he's arguing with his charioteer. Loig is saying, you know, get up, get up, you can't stay here. They're gonna send more people after you. And he's like, I can't, like, none of it means anything. And Loig says, you know, like you're wounded, Ferdia, he would have killed you. And for Anne Cuchelan says, he could have cut off my arm, my leg, and still I would mourn Ferdier of the steeds who was part of me and breathes no more.
1: Mm.
0: And that's from Carson's translation, which is probably the most poetic, maybe not the most literal, but like the idea he's like, he, he could have cut off my arms and I would still mm. be sorry that he's dead, which we've never seen him express about anyone else in the text. Everyone else is like, well, they got what was coming to them. Yeah um and then we get the fact that he like focuses on Ferdia's beauty on he's like i miss your blush your clear eye he keeps focusing on his body in ways that are very reminiscent for how we see women talking about their lovers in other texts it's how when we see like deirdre and leverham discussing nisha in longest Mac magnishland they're like oh yeah he has you know this his cheeks are red as blood with his blush and stuff and now we're getting those same images evoked by yep. for Ferdia and then that's even leaving aside all their evocations of their youthful training where they used to share a bed and they used to go into adventures together and obviously bed sharing is not the same connotations in the medieval period as it yeah. is now but we can see they're very intimate friends which we just don't see with any of the other foster brothers so it's definitely an unusual relationship that they have there.
1: Definitely, mm-hmm. it is an unusual relationship. And that's, it's definitely worth examining those points. And we, we had said earlier there was, um, well, w- regarding particularly when, when, with Kukon and Ferdia, there's um, whether or not, the, I mean, the, the, the tawn is an outlier among um, texts of this period. I know it, the, arguably it's not one period, it's multiple periods. Mm-hmm. But there was, um, but it is an outlier in terms of um, yes, yeah, emotional detail.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's partly, it's just, it's a longer text. Um, we don't have that many big, long Irish texts like this. Um, there's Agalunishinore, but that is more of a compilatory text. So that has a frame tale of Oisin and Kilter talking to St. Patrick and telling him lots of stories, but it is lots of individual stories within the frame tale, whereas the time is like one continuous tale, and we don't have very many others that are as long and as elaborate as this. Also, some people think that the Kovach episode is a later development in the story compared to some of the, like, earlier combats, um, partly because of the style it's written in, the language is a bit later, the descriptions are more elaborate, um, and it's closer to the Fiannegecht, the the Finn cycle material, than to some of the other Ulster cycle material, because it's that much more kind of florid, emotional detail, which is moving towards the slightly more romance literature that we get in the later medieval period, rather than the sort of very stripped back epic of the earlier medieval period. Um, So it definitely has a kind of opportunity for depth that a lot of the others don't have just by being so big and having so many different elements to it and also having those later elements. And it's noticeable also that the Correferia episode is more verse in it. So the time as a whole is prose, um, which is complicated for the question of whether or not it counts as an epic because some people think that epics have to be a poem. Yeah. Uh, but, well, it's prose and Metrum. So it's prose and then it has verse bits scattered through it. But the cover of ferdia episode has a lot more verse and it has verse dialogues, which are generally a later innovation compared to just weird, obscure prophecy poems that we get earlier in the story. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they have these conversations in verse, which in Carson's translation, he makes them rhyme and it sounds like they're having a rap battle, um, yeah. which is my one of my favourite things about Carson's translation is, is these old Irish rap battles that we've got going on. Um, so yeah, I think that is also like moving into that that later romance literature which has these more personal moments and these more emotional moments
1: great stuff so leg is a, a great character who isn't maybe a household name the way i think for like like has is a, is a very popular name satanta's popular name Mave's popular name a little less so yeah and no i, I mean when i drop my kids off to crash or school even i mean i see the other names i'm interested in names people picked no one's calling their sons leg
0: no, well, no one's calling them Cullen either. I think he's a bit too famous.
1: Cullen, there's a few Cullens, yeah, and but I know there's a bit of vampire in there, but the, but also Satanta is actually reasonably popular. I think uh, my wife suggested that that calling her son Cullen would be like calling them Superman. And
0: I do know at least one trans person who has called themselves Cúchulainn, oh, which I just think is bold. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went for Finn because I thought that was like more attainable level of heroism.
1: Mm. <laughs> this is, and I, I've often said it that um, that trans people who pick Irish names instead of people who are just born with them are the are the truest gales of all. <laughs> Because, I mean, there's a lot of people out there with Fanula uh, with um, with the silent GH and so on and who, um, who think, oh, you know, what have, my, what have my parents done to me? But for someone to actually say, you know, this is the real me and I'm yeah. taking this name and I'm putting silent letters out and I'm, <laughs> and I'm doing this, that's absolutely hardcore. But um, I suppose, yeah, where, where where was I spinning off of that one? Um, uh, yes, like, um, like uh, <laughs> yeah. calf.
0: Yes, so calf or... Um- figuratively in old irish it can also mean favorite or darling or beloved which mm-hmm. my group chat took about as well as can be expected so his name Log macarion gavra sometimes spelled loig macarion gavra mm-hmm. so you can kind of pronounce it however you want because the vowels always change um he his name so rian gavra it seems to come from two elements rian or srian and gavra so gavra comes from gavor which is a word for horse particularly a white horse and mare um, and then Rian can mean path, um, or Srian means bridle. So either path of a horse or bridle of a horse. So it's very much a charioteer's name, and we see a few mm-hmm. other charioteers with this patronymic. Um, and then the first element, either calf or favorite favorite charioteer is literally mm. his name it's like it's like they went oh yeah chariot mcchariot face like, <laughs>
1: they just they just want to
0: emphasize that he's the, the top charioteer of mm. the stories so that Johnny is literally chariot. what his name means <laughs> yeah <laughs> which which does amuse me i think and it does very much like emphasize that his entire identity revolves around his role mm. as kukholan's charioteer and yet he's very neglected because he shows up in like nearly every story. He often has a speaking role and sometimes actually has a much more major role than that. Like in Shergill Gachon he goes to the other world on Cuchelan's behalf, and it is implied that he does this regularly. They're like, oh yeah, Sloig, who often walks the sheath. And I'm like, can we circle back to that? Like, okay. He just goes to the other world for fun. Um, and he he often has this very significant role in sort of restraining Cuchelan's more uh, dramatic flights of fury and acting as a mediator and acting as a messenger and yet when you look at the academic commentaries on these texts he gets like mentioned in passing or in a footnote if you look Hmm. in the index there'll be like maybe half a dozen references at best in a full length book about the time and like this bothers me um especially when people are always like oh yes Cullen goes there alone Except for Loig. I'm like, I am once again asking when we will start counting Loig as a person. Like, mm-hmm. he has this whole character like, He is the original sassy sidekick. His whole job is, like, insulting Kukulun. Um, and yet nobody seems to think he's worth writing about, which is why I'm doing my thesis on him.
1: There's the thing, and, and Lake, Lake has these great lines, just from, again, from the, from the version, you see, like oh, you know, like Leg is there saying that that try that tryst with those women last night was a bad idea you know we yes. shouldn't have done that and so. oh you know what and and as for this other thing you know I, I foretold to you that this would happen it's like you know i told you so
0: yeah he definitely he's like um yeah, has this kind of curbing. He, he he's the mum friend. He's the one who's just like, ugh, really, you're gonna do hmm. this now. I have to go get you out of trouble. Like he's both <laughs> the designated driver and the mum friend. And
1: um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the mum friend. And but the um, yeah, so leg is is that is that kind of friend character. But at the same time, there's a little bit more, and that that and that the actual the, the significance of the relationship. There's might be there's more possibly more going on than just chariot riding.
0: Yeah, so. It's an interesting one because a lot of what we see of their relationship, it doesn't really come from the time directly. I mean, it does in that, like, Loic is his only companion throughout most of it. He's alone defending Ireland for like four months, five months. um, And Loic is the only person with him for a lot of that time. So we know that they play Fifth Kill together, which is like a board game precursor of chess. Um, And we know that Loic can beat him are about 50% of the time, which considering that Kuchelan's otherworldly father invented the board game, shows that they play together a lot and that Loig really understands how Kuchelan's mind works because Mm -hmm. he can beat him at strategy games. And that also shows that they're kind of intellectual equals, that they can do that. Um, But then we look at other texts, and I think particularly when we look at the early modern developments of the text which is something i've been looking at recently like after the medieval period we start to get more emphasis on loig which means we get some really interesting portrayals of him Um, and some of this is a class thing i think there's more interest in these lower class characters um so in the early modern version of the death of Cuchulain, um loig doesn't die. He, he no. dies in the medieval version right before Cuchulain does. But in the early modern one, he just gets wounded and Cuchulain like, sends him away from the battle, says, please take the news back to Eva of my death. Like, I don't want you to get hurt. And they have this really emotional conversation where he's like, you know, since the day we bound ourselves together, we have never once parted day or night. Um, and he's like, like, no one's ever had a charioteer like you, nor will they ever again. Um, So it's this really kind of emotional friendship that they have there. And also the, you know, I like to joke that it's also very homoerotic where they're Mm. not parting day or night and um, later ever references how they all, the three of them lived together. It was peaceful, our company until now in one dwelling place. Um, So, you know, medieval OT3 going on there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so there is this really close friendship there. And then when you start looking at these late developments, there's there's a version of Comper Con Cullin, which is the sort of birth of Cullin, um, that is found in a 15th century manuscript called uh, Royal Irish Academy MSD.4.2. Oh. It's not important enough to have a... Catchy it. name. Yeah. So that's actually... It's a 12th century text, probably, but it's in a 15th century manuscript. And that has a whole edition at the end of the story where basically... Loig's parents nurse Kukhalan. Loig's mother is Kukhalan's wet nurse. And Loig is still young enough at that point to have been on the breast when Kukhalan is born. So they are similar age and they grow up together from infancy as foster brothers. Um, and we don't see that tradition in a lot of places, but we do see it in the early modern death of Kukhalan where he addresses him as his covalter his foster brother. Um, so again, we have this kind of fosterage intimacy coming back and it's like okay so like how do we interpret the broader spectrum of loig within that context
1: yeah that's the 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 idea that fostering is kind of linked to this kind of this intimacy and Mm. and between the between the ferdia situation and the leg situation it's um it's interesting that, that and that i suppose the and the way the the recruitment process for the red branch Knights seems to have um have similar elements too Yeah,
0: and there are other parallels between Ferdia and Lug as well in the early modern material because we don't have many references to Ferdia outside the Tyne. It's a little bit like, oh, he's his best friend. Why have we never heard of him before? Um, He does show up in passing in Tochrach Ever, the the wooing of Ever. um, But then most of the other texts he's referenced in are early modern ones. Um, But in the Stowe version of the Tyne, which is the 15th century manuscript of Recension 2, um, not only does this kind of heighten the relationship between them, there's a there's a line in the poem um, that Ferdia speaks when he first finds out he has to fight Kukhalan, and he says, Alas, O oh God, that a woman should come between me and him, because the faultless hound is half my heart, and I am half of his. Oh. Which, I have it on my wall, it makes me cry. <laughs> mm. But the, later in that same poem, he says... The same grave to me as to him, like bury us together, which is interesting in the context of uh, another early modern text, the pursuit of Grueth Grianholas, in which Loig also says that he wants to be buried with Cuchulain, which, where have we seen this before, yeah. Ever says it at the end of the death of Cuchulain in the early modern version, and like, she's his wife, so it makes sense for her to say it, but the fact that both Ferdia and Loïc also want to be buried with Cuchulain, this is getting to be quite crowded grave.
1: Very much uh, so. <laughs> yeah, it's, that, 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 that's an alarming thought, and, <laughs> God, yeah, so it's, so, I mean, before we wrap up, I mean, this was what, what version of, of the tawn do you like most? What would you be recommending? Or uh, is that a terrible question to ask?
0: It's a terrible question because I think there are, it, it depends what you want out of the text. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, like if you're just coming at it like, I've never read the story, I'd like to read it, then either Kinsella or Carson's translation is like, that's fine. That's going to be enough. Um, obviously, I'm always playing around with the different recensions and like looking at what different authors have prioritized in their tellings. So Cecile Arachli um, edited and translated them in the in the 60s and 70s, and her versions are actually online on the on the Celt website. Um, but they're they're interesting for sort of exploring. The Stowe version hasn't had a translation into English like that hmm. poem. Um, hasn't been translated fully into English. It's been translated into German. Um, obviously, by the time you get to 15th century Irish, if you've got modern Irish, uh, it's it's okay to sort of muddle through. It's yeah. the medieval stuff that's hard, uh, which is the same also with Addis Conchalen or E. Conchalen because that's in early modern Irish and some of the manuscripts are like 18th century, 19th century. People who have modern Irish can more or less read it. You just yeah. have to like take some of the letters out and then it looks...
1: Yeah, it's, it's, I guess, exactly. It's it's, it's almost like kind of a Deneen entry rather than kind of actual proper old, old Irish.
0: Yeah, yeah. whereas um, for me, as someone who's modern Irish is still at Duolingo level, um, <laughs> I sit there with a dictionary and cry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in terms of versions of the time, like I wouldn't, the, the only exception, I say that the Stowe version hasn't been translated. Actually, Joseph Dunn's translation, which is the one that Antoine bought, recounts does include bits of Stowe he sort of mixes all of the manuscripts together and it's one of the reasons his version of the fight with Ferdia is very very long because the Stowe version has all of these additions to it and this whole poem and then mm. there's some supernatural helpers who don't show up anywhere else which means whenever the Anne book gets to that point it takes about three weeks for it to tweet the whole thing. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, completely. If it, if it did book a Leinster or something, it would be way quicker. <laughs> 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 if it did recension 1, it would be even quicker still because mm. in that one, the fight only lasts a day. Um,
1: mm. so. God, yeah, I was supposed to... That would be the purpose of tweeting it slowly out. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, but it, yeah. Is, it is very much... Um, all about what you're looking for in a text, I guess.
1: Good stuff. Well, I think, yeah, you can't, you can't go wrong with the Kinsla version and the Carson version, if you can get your hands on it's a very attractive and accessible one too. Yeah. Then we love to ask all our guests what their favourite Irish word is. Um, what are we cutting on the hop there?
0: Um, yeah, so mine is, <laughs> unexpectedly, it's phalicon, butterfly. Oh, excellent. Um, I... So I, I grew up in England um, in a family that didn't really know anything about Irish, didn't care about Irish. And I got into it via children's novels. And when I was about 12, I was online and I found this website that promised to teach me Irish through flashcards. It was like a very early precursor of Duolingo. Mm.
1: Um,
0: and I didn't get very far. I learned how to say hello. And then I learned some animals and, you know, Madra and Bo and Félgán. Mm. And for some reason. The word falcon—it was so different from the English word, and it was so interesting as a word to me. It was sort of the first time it clicked. The Irish was a real language that real people spoke, not just in fantasy novels, but like in real everyday life. There were people who spoke Irish, and for me, as someone like who had had no exposure to it, I was like, "Oh wow! Like this is this is a whole thing that I didn't." know about and then i didn't really work on my irish for the next 10 years but that word i remembered it and that's always mm. going to be like kind of the what i attribute as being the first word of irish i learned even if mm. it wasn't technically it's the one that stuck and it's the one that meant something
1: well there you have it that's, that's the one that clicked yeah Finn Longwell, thank you so much for joining us today where, where can people find your work um,
0: so I am always rambling about medieval stuff on Twitter, at Finn Longman. I also have a blog, finlongman.com. And at the moment, I am working through Standish O'Grady's The Coming of Cúchulainn and analysing his interesting choices that he makes. So that is the kind of thing I get up to on the internet. <laughs> but yeah, I'm basically just at Finn Longman everywhere that you could expect to find me. And I never shut
1: up. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And please, uh, please never do. <laughs> Finn Longman, thank you so much for joining us today. So, until next time, it's a slan from me. Slan. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.
0: It'll be usually me swearing at the internet. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> Good stuff. That's all-